this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Good afternoon. My name is Philip Spencer, and I am a resident in cardiothoracic surgery at the Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm here with Dr. Arminder Josser. Dr. Josser is assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and a cardiac surgeon at MGH, where he's an active member of the Thoracic Aortic Center. Uh, he trained in surgery and cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Pennsylvania and received additional training in aortic and endovascular surgery at the University of Freiburg in Germany. Uh, Dr. Josser, thank you for your time. Thanks, PJ, for asking me to do this. So, Dr. Jasser, we're going to go over a case uh, to discuss your management of aortic arch disease. And the case is a 60-year-old woman who presents to your clinic with increasing shortness of breath. She has already received a chest CTA, and it shows an aortic arch aneurysm that extends to the left subclavian artery. It's 5.7 centimeters at its largest diameter, and her root is 3.8 centimeters. An, echocard- an echocardiogram was in normal limits, and she does not demonstrate evidence of heart failure. Her abdominal exam is normal. Uh, she's a former one-pack-per-day smoker but quit 20 years ago and has never used uh, illicit substances. So, <clears throat> Dr. Josser, are there any other items that you'd be looking for um, in the office? Um, sure. You know, you have to do your routine history and physical, essentially looking for things such as family history of aortic problems, how was this diagnosed? Is the patient symptomatic from this? Have there been any prior imaging so you can determine sense of growth? Um, although at 5.7 centimeters, she already meets criteria for an intervention. The other things you would look for is what other comorbid conditions they have um, in terms of either their cardiac morbidities or neurological morbidities or you know, what is their kidney function like and so forth. Because today we have uh, technology and technique where in addition to providing them with an open operation, we can also offer them several less invasive or hybrid um, uh, options for some patients who are not candidates for this. We also look at their body habitus and functional status uh, to uh, identify their candidacy um, for the operation. And um, in addition to their physical exam and history, are there specific studies that um, you're either looking for or would get if they haven't been obtained uh, yet beyond the CTA and the imaging of the aorta as you plan uh, an intervention? As you mentioned, CTA or some sort of cross-sectional imaging is the key to planning an aortic operation. It identifies the, di- the diagnosis, the pathological segments. It also is key for um, um, intraoperative st- strategy planning and so forth. But you would obtain the other um, imaging studies, some of them routinely, all of them sort of tailored to the patient. Cardiac catheterization, for example, any patient um, who's a smoker, such as she is, and 60 years of age, you, you need to make sure that their coronary arteries are okay. An echocardiogram, not only to look for cardiac function, but also to look for aortic valve disease in presence of uh, any significant uh, aortic regurgitation, maybe as a sequel of the aneurysm. Um, pulmonary function tests in smokers and, and in patients that you may anticipate having problems afterwards. Uh, I also very liberally would use either carotid ultrasound or some sort of carotid imaging, especially if I was uh, planning um, uh, cerebral perfusion, selected cerebral perfusion as, as part of my operative strategy. So those would be the general things uh, that, I would, that I would look for. Great. <clears throat> and as you are thinking about your operation or your intervention, how do you ex- decide on the extent of the operation? Would you do a more limited operation 
or a total arch or, or, or more than that? Sure. I mean, the key thing that um, sort of determines the extent of the, uh, the operation is the extent of the aneurysm. What you want to do is uh, resect all the aorta that is aneurysmal within, you know, extent of reason. So anything that is more than 4.5 centimeter uh, would be resected at the time of a resection of an aneurysm that would otherwise meet criteria. For example, um, if uh, the ascending is 5.7 centimeter like she like she has, uh, if her aortic root was more than 4.5 centimeter, then I would concomitantly replace that. Same thing in the arch. Anything that is um, dilated, you will you will uh, plan to resect that. And Dr. Josser, how do you decide on the ex- the extent of your operation, whether or not it's a hemi arch, a total arch, um, the root, uh, or or something more than that? The key determinant to to deciding the extent of the operation is obviously um, the extent of the aneurysm. So anything that is more than five point five centimeters generally would meet guideline criteria for for a replacement. Um, except in patients who have either connective tissue disorders or familial disorders, they very good lower that to uh, five centimeters or in some cases even lower, in, for example, in Louis Dietz patients and so forth. Um, if you're in there operating for an aneurysm, then anything that is more than 4.5 centimeters should generally be replaced. For example, if in this specific case, if her aortic root was more than 4.5 centimeters, then I would plan to replace at the time of her ascending aortic replacement. The other things that would um, sort of influence that decision would be uh, patient's age, um, what is their functional status, what does the rest of their aorta look like, um, if they have connective tissue disorder, um, like I mentioned. For a younger patient, you probably want to be a little bit more aggressive. For patients who have other dilated segments of their aorta beyond their current pathology, you at least want to plan or stage your operation such that the second part of the operation is facilitated, either by creation of a landing zone so that you can stent that um, aneurysm perhaps in the descending aorta later on or, or leaving a generous elephant trunk or a frozen elephant trunk. So in somebody who's older, is frail, you just want to do what is necessary today um, to, to impact their immediate risk of complications from the aortic problem. Um, so those are the factors that I would take into consideration. Great. That's really helpful. Thanks. And now, in thinking about your operative technique, what is your preferred cannulation strategy for, for specific aortic arch surgery? In general? Uh, again, that is determined by the extent of um, the resection that I'm applying mm-hmm. to. Generally speaking, for any patient who j- just requires a hemi-arch, I, I prefer to do central cannulation. It's just clean, everything mm-hmm. remains in the chest. Um, it, I still have all the options available to me for uh, any kind of cerebral perfusion that I want to do. For a hemi-arch, you're generally looking at short circuit rest times of about 20 minutes or so. Um, um, you can do this under straight hypothermia or unilateral uh, anti-cerebral perfusion. Um, so no, I, I don't feel the need to go extra thoracic in mm-hmm. those cases. In patients where, where I'm planning a more extensive arch replacement, for example, a total arch, I would often uh, prefer to calculate the right axillary artery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, provides me an option of, of easy and very convenient um, unilateral anti-cerebral perfusion, which I will almost always employ in patients uh, where I'm anticipating a circulatory rest time of greater than uh, 20 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And would you say that's a, a main determinant of why you would choose axillary over something like femoral artery cannulation uh, for a, an arch operation? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I don't think um, there's hard data to support 
that one type of cantillation might be better than others, although this has been investigated in patients with aortic dissections and some studies in aortic aneurysms. And then there's some inferences that axillary artery cantillation might be better in some. But for the most part, uh, for me personally, I don't like retrograde flow uh, from the femoral arteries, especially for aortic cases. I worry about embolic phenomenon uh, to the brain. But mainly it is just the convenience of having easy access to the right carotid artery through the um, brachycephalic trunk mm -hmm. via uh, profusion from the right axillary artery that, that really um, influences my decision. Right. It also in patients who are redos or patients um, mm -hmm. for dissections, for example, mm -hmm. um, you already have your uh, cannulation site secured before you're planning to do the operation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and is there any specific anatomy that's important during your initial dissection? Uh, yes, there are two things that I pay particular attention to uh, when planning an aortic art op arch operation. Is one, uh, presence of an aberrant right subclavian artery. Obviously, as you mm -hmm. um, you know can well imagine, that uh, trying to do anterior cerebral perfusion through a right axillary artery in the absence in the in the presence of a right aberrant right subclavian artery is not going to work very well. Mm -hmm. So. That, obviously, um, I pay attention to. The other important uh, anatomic variant that is useful to know is if it's a four-vessel arch, mm -hmm. where the vertebral artery, the left vertebral artery, comes up directly off the aortic arch rather than the left subclavian artery. Most of the times, you have to plan ahead for that, either to re-implant it directly onto the graft or to the left carotid artery, or um, use a vein interposition graft to put that on as a separate patch. Uh, a bovine trunk, um, is is good to know, but that's the kind of stuff that you can figure out even if uh, mm -hmm. once you're in there. Mm -hmm. Okay, great, thanks. And now, <clears throat> when you're planning your operation, how do you decide what temperature you might want to go to uh, if you're going to use circulatory rest for a specific case? That's a broad topic, but generally speaking, um, the temperature and the and, and the cerebral perfusion strategies are determined by the amount of time that I think I'm going to need uh, mm -hmm. uh, under circulatory rest. For a hemi-arch operation where I'm anticipating a short secretary rest time, uh, I would either go on to moderate hypothermia, 26 or 28 degrees Celsius, but in those cases, I would always use um, anti-grade cerebral perfusion. My mm -hmm. preferred technique in that case is to um, just put a small canline into the innominate artery, clamp the base of it, and under unilateral uh, anti-grade cerebral perfusion, um, perform the secretary rest portion of the operation. For any patient where I'm anticipating a longer secretary arrest time, in those cases, not only do you have to worry about uh, cerebral perfusion, but you also have to worry about visceral um, ischemia time. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, again, depending on how much time you're anticipating um, for, for the, the distal operation before you can resume uh, corporeal circulation, um, that'll impact my uh, perfusion temperature. Most of the time for total large operations, I would go uh, to 18 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. uh, that gives me about 90 minutes of circuit rest time, so you have a nice buffer zone, mm -hmm. even if you're allowed to do a difficult anatomy or mm -hmm. a dissected arch or you know, whatever the situation may present. At 24 degrees Celsius, I think you have about 60 minutes, which, which is okay for most mm -hmm. operations. Um, and then anything that is shorter, I would just go um, uh, to moderate hypothermia with human basically. And that's with or without uh, regional perfusion, such as anterograde cerebral perfusion? Um, when you're choosing those temperatures? So the only temperature that I would not use 
aggregate total perfusion mm -hmm. is, is at deep hypothermic mm -hmm. levels, 18 degrees or 20 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. Any temperature above that, uh, 24, 26, 28, um, you have to provide um, uh, anterior cerebral perfusion to protect the brain. At those temperatures, the brain doesn't have the amount of time. Mm -hmm. At 18 degrees Celsius, you probably have somewhere about 30 to 40 minutes of time um, uh, for the brain. But any any um, temperature higher than that, I would use uh, anti-grade cerebral perfusion. Thank you. And then on the same topic, um, do you use any specific neuromonitoring uh, for hypothermic circulatory arrest? Uh, yes. So at our center, as you are well aware, PJ, we have nearest monitoring, which mm -hmm. monitors these uh, cerebral um, oxygen saturation. There are several um, papers out there that discuss their advantages and, and, and limitations and, and the data, but there's been trend worldwide to use it more and more commonly. Mm -hmm. uh, I use it mostly to direct my ACP and uh, uh, especially when I'm doing a total large operation. Um, the other monitoring strategy that we have is uh, uh, EEG, um, or at MGH, we have process EEG, as you know, something called SETLINE. Um, it, it can be a useful strategy, but you have to be careful how you use it. Um, there's data to suggest that uh, if you're cooling to 30 minutes of temperature, 30 minutes of cooling time or cooling to 18 degrees Celsius, then only in about 60% of patients are you gonna achieve electrocerebral silence by EEG. Um, now, there's no data really to suggest that EEG silence is better than non-EEG silence, but um, cooling is not the same thing as the EEG silence. Mm -hmm. Cooling to 18 degrees Celsius is not the same thing as cooling to EEG silence. Mm -hmm. So if I'm gonna do a straight circuit arrest operation without any cerebral perfusion, then I would, I would uh, make sure that EEG is isoelectric mm -hmm. as well as uh, the hypothermia, uh, I see. desired level of hypothermia has been achieved. Thanks. So you've done your your total arch operation and we're in the ICU, and what are the immediate post-operative things that, that you're looking for, that you're concerned about specific to uh, an, an arch replacement? So, you know, we worry about bleeding in all cases, mm -hmm. so that remains a concern. Um, their cardiac function, um, make sure they have a good, mm -hmm. robust cardiac output and index. But the things that are specific to aortic heart surgery that are that weigh heavy in my mind is one, their neurological outcome. Mm -hmm. You're messing with their um, perfusion, their brain perfusion, um, bringing temperatures up and down, flowing and mm -hmm. stopping the flow and all that. So stroke, especially embolic stroke and the neurological recovery is, is a big thing. I ask my patients to be woken up as soon as they're warm, at least for a neurological exam. Mm -hmm. um, and if there's a concern, appropriate action be taken. Um, patients who undergo circuitry arrest, uh, you also have to, to monitor for sequelae of corporeal arrest. So um, their kidney function, their lactate levels, and the perfusion levels uh, based on um, the amount of time that the viscera were ischemic remains important. And as these patients begin to wake up, um, you obviously have to monitor for spinal cord function and lower extremity function, although rare for aortic heart surgery is something to be kept in mind. But recurrent laryngeal nerve injury mm -hmm. can occur, especially for more extensive arch operations. So um, I'm very aggressive with speech-language mm -hmm. pathology eval for these patients. Make sure their voice is okay and make sure they can really swallow before um, you um, start feeding them mm -hmm. because they're a high-risk of aspiration. 
And even if the nerve is not injured, uh, sometimes it's just transient dysfunction from the manipulation that's your for an extensive arch operation. Do you do you get uh, formal swallow evaluations for all of your arch, or specifically total arch operations, or only if there's a sign that there's something wrong, you're choking when they're drinking, or if their voice seems hoarse? So we haven't adopted a policy of universally getting a swallow eval, although we have certainly mm -hmm. discussed it. Um, but certainly for patients who are having either swallowing problems mm -hmm. or have voice abnormalities, I have a very low threshold to have um, have a either a swallow eval mm -hmm. or ask one of our ENT colleagues to do an indirect endoscopy mm -hmm. and, and look at the um, vocal cord function. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> and then after the patient's been discharged, what uh, what are your expectations at the first postoperative clinic and your and your follow up strategy over the next couple of years for for patients who've undergone an arch operation? Sure. I mean, you obviously want these patients to do well. Yeah. So when you when they when they come back to the office, you look for the usual stuff as you would mm -hmm. do for any uh, cardiac surgery. Make sure their incisions are healing well. Make sure they're getting up and moving around. They're sort of resuming their lifestyle. You still want to have some activity restrictions, mostly for sternal protection. Their blood pressure uh, is well managed and well controlled. Um, I have a practice of imaging all aortic repairs mm -hmm. either before the time of their discharge, mostly for patients who underwent an aortic replacement for dissections, or at least at the time of their follow-up visit, which generally occurs about six to eight weeks, mm -hmm. um, for monitoring their aorta for any pseudoaneurysms or uh, hematomas or, or collections or so forth. Um, and once I'm happy with that scan, then generally I would see them back um, in about three to six months again, at which time I may repeat another study based on what their initial mm -hmm. pathology was, and then subsequently every year. Mm -hmm. These patients with aortic disease are patients uh, who are patients for life and they should have their aortas monitored for life, mm -hmm. uh, especially if they've been treated for an aortic dissection. Uh, the follow-up strategy sort of varies as to what the initial operation was for and what the patient's age is and what the rest of their aorta looks like at the time of the initial mm -hmm. uh, operation. And if there's specific things in other parts of the aorta that I'm monitoring for, then I would be more aggressive than those patients. Dr. Joshua, that's great. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure.